Hello and welcome to the Victorian Gas Lamp, the podcast shining a warm light on the 19th century and most notably throughout the reign of Her Majesty Queen Victoria. Episode 21, The Second Greatest Britain. When I think of the 19th century Victorian era, one of the first things that comes to mind is that this was a time when so many amazing innovations in technology were created. There were so many great leaps during this century that is one of the reasons why I started doing this podcast. It gives me plenty of material to talk about. I guess because much of what started out at the beginning of the 1800s was, by the time of January 1st, 1900, so completely different. From what I have covered in past episodes, think of the medical professions. Even until well into the middle of the 19th century, people were thinking that it was simply bad air that caused medical issues. That it was bad blood that was the cause of you being a troublemaker. A woman could be locked away because she was hysterical. People were literally chained in their rooms. And yet by the end of this century, they had at least a basic understanding of bacteria and also a far better understanding of mental health issues too. Take the humble gas lamp for example as well. The symbol of this podcast no less. This is the century that went from having streets so dark that the government had stipulated that you were required to have a lamp in your window if you lived on a street front property. Then the streets were lit by the warm glow of the gas lamp and later the incredible innovation that was electricity came along and changed the cityscape forever. So who were the people that helped change that cityscape? Who helped shape the kingdom as a whole and in some ways literally changed the world? Well, this week we're going to be looking at one of those people. A man whose work changed the world he lived in and whose legacy remains into the modern age. This man is someone I'd actually never heard of, to my own embarrassment. But, in a 2002 survey, he was voted the second greatest Briton of all time. Winston Churchill took first, because, hey, he was Churchill. So who was second? This man with, quite frankly, a seriously awesome name. Well, I'd like to introduce you to Isambard Kingdom Brunel. For the record, and in my own defence, in my research I have found that many of you in the UK are well aware of Isambard, uh, particularly if you live in the Bristol area. For those of us overseas who enjoy our history, this episode I'm talking about a man who has universities named after him. And not because he gave them a truckload of cash, but from the fact that he was so brilliant that you just had to name a university after him. Isambard Kingdom Brunel 
was born on the 9th of April in 1806 during the reign of King George III. His father was Mark Isambard Brunel. His mother was Sophia Kingdom. And it was from their names that I'm sure you can already gather that they gave their son his awesome moniker. His father was known throughout his life by his preferred name, Isambard. But for the purposes of distinction here, I'm going to refer to him by his first name and title, Sir Mark. Yes, that's right. His dad ends up being made a knight of the realm for his work on the Thames Tunnel. Sir Mark had been born in France during the French Revolution and then later became the chief engineer of New York City, no less. Not a man to rest on his laurels, he then moved to London in 1799, and it was here that he met and married Sophia. Isambard was the youngest in the Brunel family, having two older sisters, Sophia and Emma. Yes, so just as you can probably already gather, this family of five had two Isambards and two Sophias. It's like all the Georges in the royal family think they take the time to give their kids different names. But anyway, despite his father's skills, they were often struggling for money, although Isambard later recalled that he did have a happy childhood. And it was during this time that his father was teaching him drawing and also Euclidean geometry. Interesting idea of a happy childhood, but we will go with that. And what I did find interesting was that Isambard's father also had him out drawing buildings he was interested in and also identifying their faults. And when you think about it, he's getting an education for a profession that his own father was an expert in. You do have to remember that while these days people choose whatever career they want to go into, Social structures and educational options were a lot more restricted in the 19th century. You were expected to follow in the footsteps of your father and learn his trade or craft. It just happened to be that Isambard's father was one of the best in what he did. And while he had been getting all that education at home, when he was 14, his father sent him to study in France, including at the prestigious Lycée Henri IV. But like today, a good education cost money, and unfortunately, Isambard's father got himself into a spot of financial bother. With debts in excess of £5,000 that he was unable to pay, Sir Mark ended up in debtor's prison. That would be around about $100,000 today. Now, Sir Mark had been in there for around about three months and seemed to be pretty much going to stay there for the foreseeable future. So... He let it be known publicly of one of the offers that he was looking at accepting for work, one that would solve his financial problems. Isambard's father had been offered a position working for the Tsar of Russia. I mentioned before that he was a talented engineer, and Sir Mark really was. After all, he is going to be knighted for it in his future, even though I'm calling him Sir Mark already. And when the government decide that they can't afford to lose you to the Tsar and so pay off all your debts, you know you, you must be pretty good at what you do. He did need to promise he was going to stay in Britain, but I think we can all agree he got a pretty good deal. But this podcast is about Isambard the Younger, 
and once his highly talented father was made chief engineer on the Thames Tunnel project, Isambard began working for his father. The Thames Tunnel was an engineering marvel. It was the first time a tunnel had been built underneath a navigable river. And it was finished in 1843 and it remains in use to this day. But Isambard was only involved in the tunnel until 1828. The digging for the tunnel was incredibly dangerous because of the waterlogged sediment and loose gravel that they were digging through. There are long periods during the 18 years that it took to build the tunnel where no work was possible. Severe floods occurred on a number of occasions and in one of these the two most senior engineers were killed and Isambard was badly injured. This event alone left him needing six months to recover and delayed construction by several years. However, Isambard never returned to work on the Thames Tunnel after this. He did spend the next few years working on an engine that ran using a form of carbon dioxide. Known as the gas experiments, they were designed by his father, and while there was a lot of interest, including the Admiralty, it ultimately didn't go anywhere, and Isambard gave up those experiments as a sideline in 1834. Also during this time in 1829, he designed the plans for the stunning Clifton Suspension Bridge. I'll post a photo of this on the Instagram account this week, and it really is an impressive span over the River Avon near Bristol. His design came about to be used in an odd way though, because a competition was held for designs for the upcoming bridge. These design submissions were assessed by Thomas Telford, a Scottish engineer of some talent himself, he decided that he could build a better bridge. And he did design a bridge. It was going to cost around £52,000. And then Brunel came out with a design that would cost 10000 less. The media at the time got a hold of this information and ultimately Brunel was awarded the winning design. So there's a tick for competition. Upon winning this design award, Brunel wrote to his brother-in-law, the politician Benjamin Hawes, and quote, Of all the wonderful feats I have performed since I have been in this part of the world, I think yesterday I performed the most wonderful. I produced unanimity among 15 men who were all quarrelling about that most ticklish subject, taste. End quote. What a burn. Work started in 1831, but thanks to riots trying to advocate Bristol having a greater representation in Parliament, construction was delayed. Don't you just hate that? I'll cover those riots another time, but it did mean that the bridge wasn't completed until 1864. Five years after Isambard died, so sadly he never saw the bridge finally built. But with the riots stopping the building, it was after his death that those at the Institution of Civil Engineers felt it would be a worthy memorial and started raising new funds. So work started in 1862 and the bridge was completed in 1864. The Clifton Suspension Bridge still stands and over 4 million vehicles traverse it every year. It spans 702 feet, or 214 metres, 
and was the longest span in the world at the time of its construction. In 2010, letters were found showing Sirmark recommended to his son to add a central support. Isambard ignored this, giving it this amazing graceful length that we have to this day. And for extra trivia points, do you know where the world's first bungee jump was? Well done you. Yes, it was off the Clifton back in 1979. But back to when he was still alive, Isambard was really nailing this whole bridge thing. He was responsible for the Royal Albert Bridge near Plymouth. Designed in 1855, it was opened by Prince Albert in 1859. He's also the man behind the Windsor Railway Bridge as well as the Maidenhead Railway Bridge over the Thames in Berkshire. The Maidenhead remains to this day the flattest, widest brick arch bridge in the world and it is still in use. It carries trains 10 times heavier than its original construction. Nice work, isn't bad? His last design was the three bridges in London. It might sound simple, but Isambard was setting up three different railway bridges to cross each other. Like I said, he really nails this whole railway bridge thing. But don't underestimate this. It's not just about the bridges, because Isambard was a man creating structures that were critically important. This was the age of steam, and economically, railways were literally the lifeblood of any nation looking to compete in a rapidly changing world. If you couldn't get your trains across your geography, you might as well not bother. There's many reasons why Victorian England became such a dominant force in the world, and their railway services were very much one of these. So while it seems somewhat mundane, it's the ordinary that does make the extraordinary. Work began on this complex bridge system in 1856, and it was completed in 1859. But I know I've been talking about bridges, but Isambard was no slouch in other areas either. His work with his father on the Thames Tunnel was later put to good use on the Great Western Railway. Beautiful viaducts and vast tunnels were also created by Isambard. These included the world-famous Box Tunnel, which when completed in 1841 was the longest railway tunnel in the world. There's an anecdote that the box tunnel may have been deliberately aligned so that the rising sun shines all the way through the tunnel on Brunel's birthday. Sounds cool, but not true. Just urban legend. But while he was creating such amazing railway solutions, there's a reason why he's regarded as a legendary figure in not only Victorian England, but as a genius in his field of engineering to this day because he also created what was called an atmospheric railway. Instead of using the locomotives that we expect on a railway line, these trains were moved by vacuum. Called atmospheric traction at the time, stationary pumps sucked air from a pipe in the centre of the track. These trains ran quite quickly, around 68 miles an hour or 110 kilometres. It did have its problems though. Leather flaps were needed under the train to keep the vacuum intact, and the vacuum dried the leather out, especially during the cold months. To keep that leather supple, tallow was used, but then that attracted rats. 
So while the idea of this vacuum-driven railway was brilliant, think of it as like a steampunk version of a maglev train, I suppose, the materials used struggled to keep up with Isambard's needs. Ultimately, the system couldn't prove itself a viable option, but you can get an idea of how he was always looking forward from ideas like this. Now, while he had finished working on the Great Western Railway, Isambard was also looking at the potential for the future in a brand new rail venture. Because once the rail was in place, he wanted to create a transport network that meant that you could travel from London to Bristol and then by ship across the Atlantic Ocean to New York. Now, these days, we think nothing of moving through different types of transport and traveling the world. But at the time, what Isambard was proposing had never been done in that sense of it being a structured form of travel from one place to the other with multiple forms of transport. And thus, the Great Western Steamship Company was formed. Again, this company could be a whole podcast, but I'm just going to hit a couple of the high points here. Because in the early 1830s, it was questionable that a steamship could make such a long journey. Salt water was used to make the steam, and that meant parts had to be cleaned regularly because of the buildup of the salt. And then you had to carry fuel to make the steam. Then, don't forget, you have to have enough room for commercial cargo to make the whole trip viable. Starting to sound like a bit of a mess and not worth the hassle? Well, our hero genuinely believed this could be done. So much so that he offered his services for free. No one with any sense was going to turn away Isambard, so he was naturally put in charge of designing their first ship, to be named the Great Western. And the Great Western was built. Launched on April 8, 1838, she was the longest ship in the world at the time. 236 feet, or 72 metres. She was made from wood, but Brunel added iron reinforcement to maintain keel strength. With steam-powered paddle wheels, the Great Western also carried four masts for sails. She left on her maiden voyage with 600,000 kilos of coal and cargo, as well as seven passengers. I'm sure it was frustrating to him, but unfortunately Brunel wasn't on the journey. There had been a fire at the fitting yard before the launch, and Isambard was injured and unable to travel. The fire also delayed the launch and meant that a competing ship called the Sirius was the first ship to cross the Atlantic under steam power. The Sirius therefore got a four-day head start against a ship designed by Isambard Kingdom Brunel. Yes, the Sirius did make it there first, but only by one day. And the crew had been forced to burn cabin furniture and even a mast to make it. Brunel's Great Western only took a total of 15 days, 5 hours, and still had a full third of her coal remaining. This is obviously, as you can see, a huge difference, and it proved that steamship travel was economically viable. And the world just got that little bit smaller. The Great Western went on to make 64 trips and was hugely successful, so much so that Brunel was asked to design her sister ship. Again, he was always looking forward. 
Moving from paddle-driven ships, Isambard had come to believe that propeller-driven ships were the way to go. And it was in 1843 that the 322-foot, or 98 metres, Great Britain was launched. The Great Britain was built of metal rather than wood, and was powered only by an engine and propeller. She is considered the first modern ship, and was the first of her kind to cross the Atlantic. But like I said before, Isambard was always looking forward, and in 1852 he went and made a third ship. Originally known as the Leviathan, she became known as the Great Eastern. 700 feet long, able to take 4,000 passengers, she was the largest ship built until the 20th century. The Great Eastern was designed to cruise non-stop from London to Sydney, Australia, and back again, because it was believed Australia had no coal reserves. Uh, as an aside, as of 2021, Australia is the fifth largest producer of coal. Mm, missed one there, Isambard. Like his atmospheric railway, though, Isambard was ahead of his time, and steamship travel like the Great Eastern would only become completely viable years later. But the Great Eastern did go on to play a critical role in laying the transatlantic telegraph cable that allowed telecommunications between Europe and North America. And the world got slightly smaller again. So far, our podcast hero has changed railways and also the high seas. And then he went and did what I regard as his greatest achievement. In 1854, Britain entered the Crimean War. That's another whole bunch of podcasts, but keeping it short, the conditions there for the injured men meant cholera, dysentery, typhoid, and malaria were all common. The legendary Floris Nightingale wrote to the Times newspaper pleading for a solution. So who stepped up? <laughs> you already know. While working on the Great Eastern and other projects, it only took Isambard and his team five months to design, build, and ship prefabbed wood and canvas buildings. They were needed in service for around a year and a half, but of the 1,300 people treated in them, only 50 died. I say only without dismissal, because in the other main hospital, it's believed that as many as 10 times that number died during that same time. Florence Nightingale was recorded as having called these tents as those magnificent huts, as she described a mobile hospital concept that exists to this day. I couldn't agree more. his career and achievements, but what about his home life? Well, it was in 1836 that he had married Mary Elizabeth Horsley, and they set up home in Duke Street, Westminster, in London. In 1843, he was performing a conjuring trick for his children when he inhaled a half-sovereign coin. I uh, went and looked this up. Uh, for Americans, it's about the size of a one-cent piece. For Australians, it's about our five-cent piece. He was choking on it when his family tried to remove it with forceps, <laughs> because everyone has those lying around, 
And when that didn't work, his father, who was at the now never to be forgotten event, suggested tying him to a board and turning him upside down. Because that's the first thing I think of to do. And I'm a bit worried about the timeline, but hey, it worked. Isambard then spent time recovering in Tainmouth. I hope I pronounced that correctly, which was a town by the sea. He liked the area so much that he ended up buying land nearby. What became known as Brunel Manor was then built on the property. So this was being built, the gardens were being created, and the Great Eastern was almost ready to be launched. And you know what happened because I said it before. Isambard was a heavy smoker and suffered a stroke on the 5th of September and died 10 days later at the age of 53. He and Mary had had three children, Isambard Jr., Henry Mark and a daughter Florence. Henry Mark later followed in his father's footsteps and became a successful engineer. Now, I mentioned at the beginning that back in 2002, he was voted as the number two in a list of greatest Britons of all time. Well, there are statues of him in London, Paddington Station, Bristol, Plymouth, Swindon, Milford Haven and Saltash. The topmast of the Great Eastern is the flagpole to the home ground for the Liverpool Football Club. Multiple streets, a road and a school are all named after him, as well as, of course, Brunel University. His facilities and benefits created for the workers on his railways are also credited for being the foundation of the design of the National Health Service in Britain. And one last accolade, at the 2012 Olympic ceremony in London, he was portrayed by legendary actor Kenneth Branagh, who I think is now Sir Kenneth anyway. Hmm. His work changed the world he lived in and then went on to influence the world far beyond what I'm sure he ever thought it would. For all the people we see in social media today, maybe taking the time to look back a little further and finding someone who worked on a smarter way to do something is a better role model than what some vapid Instagrammer is doing. Anyway, here ended the episode. My website is victoriangaslamp.com. You can email me at victoriangaslamp at gmail.com with any suggestions you might have for future episodes. Happy to look into whatever might interest you as well. You are the ones listening on Twitter at Vic Gaslamp and my Instagram account is Victorian Gaslamp. Post there probably a couple of times a week and I do it as a bit of a, an extra aside to the podcast itself. Speaking of which, the next episode will be out in two weeks. So keep a lookout for that and I'll see you next time under the gas lamp. <laughs>